This is Ryan Harvey in Baltimore, and you're listening to episode 27 of Hope Dies Last, Egypt, the Revolution and its Aftermath. Right now we're approaching the 10th anniversary of the departure of Hosni Mubarak after decades of authoritarian rule in Egypt. He was ousted by the revolution. And as part of commemorating the 10 years that have passed since the revolution, I wanted to do an episode where we talked about what's happening today in Egypt, especially the fate of political prisoners and the people who had participated in that revolution. The story is quite a sad story, and you're going to hear a lot about it in the following conversation. Joining me today is Saeed. He's a surgeon who participated in the revolution, tending to those injured by the police and the military. In 2015, he was arrested and sentenced to two years in Torah prison in Cairo, where many political prisoners have been held and continue to be held. After a strong international solidarity campaign, Said was released and banished from the country. He's currently based in Germany. Also joining us is Dr. Vivian Matthias Boone. She's an assistant professor of international relations of the Middle East at the University of Amsterdam. Vivian has spent a lot of time in Egypt looking at the impact of the revolution and its aftermath on those who participated in it. And her forthcoming book documents these impacts, as well as the shift that happened both after the 2011 revolution and the 2013 coup. Said and Vivian, thank you both for joining me. You're welcome. Uh, thanks for you. Thanks for having us. We're recording this just a few days before the 10th anniversary of the beginning of the Egyptian revolution. By the time folks are hearing this, you know, I'm sure there'll be other podcasts and TV specials and, you know, articles coming out online commemorating the Arab Spring and the Egyptian revolution. The reason I invited both of you to the show is because I wanted to have a conversation about some of the things you just mentioned, Vivian, the, the aftermath of this revolution. Obviously, there were others throughout the region that also had their own aftermaths, uh, some far more bloody than others. But this was a revolution that we watched, you know, from for me as an American, like we watched in real time from afar. And we had an unprecedented, you know, I don't think there's ever been a revolution in, in human history that was so well documented and captured in the moment by its own participants. So it wasn't just left to the you know, the writers and the philosophers to talk about it afterwards, like young people were talking about it from the square, from their phones as it was happening. Um, and, you know, it was um, it was a really, really big story. But what happened afterwards was a much smaller story in the world. And I wanted my listeners and I wanted to just make that contribution to, you know, remind people or, or let them know for the first time that the situation today is is extremely tragic. And it's, you know, it, it requires their attention and it requires people to to think about how to to help make change today in Egypt. Um, before we jump into some of that, maybe we could just help give the listener an overview of what happened in Egypt 10 years ago. And, and maybe we could just bring that story up to what happened in 2013, kind of the beginning of today's story. And then we can talk about what Egypt looks like today. Said, you were you were there in 2011. Maybe you just want to start us off with what happened 10 years ago. From my perspective, as one of the people who shared in the revolution that was there, it was um, kind of a very special round in the Egyptian revolution. It was an extraordinary event 
on uh, the row in the row of a lot of struggle that have been done in Egypt since the beginning of the first military state in Egypt in the coup of 52 and it was very special but what i meant it it was not a surprise it was not coming from nowhere that was long time before that in 2005 we had a very strong struggle and a very strong movement called kifaya and we had a struggle during the presidential election and we had a struggle after this in mahal al kobra uh, uh, three years before the revolution and then we have the struggle of khalid saeed the young guy that has been uh, tortured and killed by the egyptian police and then the young activists called for protests in at the anniversary of the police uh, 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 of the egyptian police uh, so the, the, this day the young activists thought would be the day that we go to the st- in the, uh, to the street and ask for reforming this police system in egypt just to remind the listener khalid said was a was a young egyptian who was beaten to death by the police and the pictures of his body were you know went viral amongst young people in egypt so when this when these protests were called on january 25th this was national police day and this was you know directly tied to what had happened to to khalid said exactly uh, and the point that uh, the decision of the revolution was not a decision that the young activists took but it was the decision of the egyptian people the majority of the egyptian people decide, decided that this is the revolutionary moment so they wanted to take uh, the power of they wanted to that mubarak would step down and this revolution has been created uh, uh, in the streets not in the social media or not coming from the activists as some people try to to say that was not what happened at this time so this is what happened for me uh, 10 years ago i think it's important also to point out that the brutal murder of khalid said is definitely not the first time that anyone you know has been brutally killed by the police like that what actually stood out for uh, about khalid said was that basically he came from a higher sort of you know middle class kind of background wore a hoodie had a fairly sort of educated type of background which appealed to a wider array of people in the sense that they now also felt existentially insecure and i think that's important because often we forget that and i'm not saying by the way that ahmed did this but i mean when i say we here i mean the western audience <laughs> that we're speaking to we we might tend to forget that actually there were many many people who were killed by uh the mubarak regime um in equally brutal uh, kind of ways it's just that they are forgotten because they were poor uh war you know galabias were kind of not the types um that would also speak to the imagination and i think in addition to that what also particularly stands out about the 2011 uprisings is that really it was a full out protest at what i would sort of call existential precarity in the sense of having your life hanging at the thread and and that the the threads are being played by the regime which is the mubarak regime 
And that's either from police brutality, so indeed, like Ahmed said, it's not a coincidence that the the protest took place on National Police Day, and that's when it started to take off, um, you know, properly. But also against um, other forms of structural marginalization, um, you know, corruption, uh, grave poverty that was just increasing, police abuse that was happening uh, rampantly. So it's not just this one incident, but it's actually it's the whole system of police abuse that people were uh, focusing against. Yeah, just just want to add something that uh, yes, the the it, why it was in twenty fifth why it was in the national uh, police day because the egyptians knew that uh, what is what happened to khaled saeed and said bilal for example that was a systematic thing that was not just this is not no that was the routine the strategy of the egyptian police that was this like for example during mubarak we had this uh, enforced disappearance uh, strategy they used it Uh, systematically, systematically, but we didn't call it enforced disappearance at this time. And this is, for example, one of the changes uh, that uh, 25th Revolution uh, did for us, that we, be, we began to get more resources, more tools, more understanding the Egyptian opposition. I feel that it uh, had learned a lot from this revolution. What you were talking about earlier with why does somebody like Khaled Said become that popular figure? And I think for folks in the U.S. especially, like we've had so many of that person, especially in recent years, you know, the Egyptian people rose up around similar conditions. Like it's not, it wasn't this foreign struggle, you know, related to some otherworldly things. It was related to the same types of issues that, that black people in the, the U.S. deal with here and In, in the context, it's also so important to remember that this was coming just, you know, two, three years after the financial crisis. There was a global food crisis in the few years leading up to it. Prices had gone up for for bread, for oil and, and fuel and such. And so, you know, the Western media definitely wanted to tell the story of, a, you know, a struggle for democracy because that, that tends to work for the U.S. story. But it was there was so much underneath of it that was not just political, right? Often when we look at revolutions, we often think about it in terms of, um, you know, inputs and outputs as in sort of like, you know, what do people put in and what do they get out? But actually what we often forget in that, that kind of way of looking at the revolution is what the moment itself does. <clears throat> and that is also, I think, very important in terms of our analysis of and, and our vision on the Egyptian revolution. And that is that actually... It really was a transformative moment whereby everyone did also, at least on the squares, everyone got together. Um, you know, people that used to not speak to each other, that used to be atomized and individualized and cut off from each other, they were suddenly on the street, you know, holding hands, standing next to each other, uh, fighting the Mubarak regime. And that moment of where you basically would have a Salafist next to a liberal, uh, next to a feminist, next to an Ikhwani, you know, that's itself has a radical uh, transformative process. And it's precisely that radical transformative process that then later on the Egyptian military wanted to crush. Because that's where, you know... It, it's frightening for its interests, um, which is just basically its own political and economic gain. 
So I think we also have to understand that it's beyond the political, you know, input-outputs kind of scenario. It's also the moment itself is transformative of the new kind of relations that are being made. I wanted to 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 also say that it's very important to mention that uh, the revolution also is kind of a result to the transformation that Mubarak regime had uh, uh, or began in the last third of his period from the capitalism to neoliberalism. Uh, his son was the leader of this wave in the government and in the party. Uh, and this also made things much worse for the Egyptian people. Uh, so they began to feel how hard uh, economically and socially is the situation. So that increased the anger. And this is why the Egyptians saw it as a revolutionary moment when uh, there some uh, young activists called to uh, for the protests. The reason why the military also didn't intervene is because their own interests were being harmed by the possible succession of Mubarak's son, Gamal. Like when he would take over, he would actually end up privatizing even more of the Egyptian economy that would basically go directly against the economic interests of the military. And the military controls a big chunk of the economy in Egypt. It's not like... It's the core. It's the center of the Egyptian economy. And they are like, uh, yeah, they are the most powerful economic player in the Egyptian economy. Uh, and they are a state inside the state. So, of course, it's again, it's their interest to have the civilian uh, uh, as, uh, as an opponent in the government or in the, in the, in the, um, in the market, for example. Let's say I, I, I want I think you wanted to ask about uh, about the the period of the revolution and how it ended like this. The revolution happened, and you have just one organized political uh, uh, movement in Egypt, which was the Muslim Brothers. We had another movement, but was not mature enough, like Muslim Brothers don't have the enough resources, the money don't have the uh, base also like the grassroots uh, uh, network they have like i mean, mean sixth april movement for example or the revolutionary socialist movement they they were like both of them small movements in comparison to the very well organized and rich uh, uh, movement like muslim brothers movement so they were the most powerful uh, political player at this time with the businessmen of the old party, of the uh, old national party. This is just the two power we had. And then the young people who are not yet organized, who are tried very hard to build parties already, like three parties, four parties. It was all a, a result of efforts from the young people during the revolution. Um, and then... Uh, the military was also, it was very kind of very easy for us to see that the military will try to have a deal with the Muslim brothers. And because the Muslim brothers are not revolutionary, but they are just reformists, reformist Islamists, it was the best choice for them to join the, the military and try to get benefit from this new deal and just let the revolutionaries, uh, the people, to themselves. They didn't believe in the 
power of the people, but they believed in the power of the military. And uh, Muhammad Mahmoud Street Battles was the moment when the revolution camp began to divide into two camps, revolutionary and reformists. The reformists were Muslim brothers and 100% uh, uh, of the liberals. And on the other camp were the Marxists, the all the left, all the left by with its all uh, uh, faces, uh, in the other camp who um, were not well organized enough, as I said. So it was very easy to the regime with Muslim brothers to get to make them uh, weaker and weaker. And then when Muslim brothers came to power with this deal uh, with the military, they began to feel in power. They began to act with the authority. They tried to replace uh, the Mubarak with a new face and use the oppressive machine of the state just in a new form. And of course, the revolutionary people, the people on the street who are still very active, are still very angry, uh, will not uh, accept this easily. So began the polarization, began to fight against Muslim brothers. Muslim brothers began to play the authority role. We began to challenge this authority and the military get used of the moment. And then the coup happened. Mahmoud Mahmoud was sort of the the pinnacle, in one could say, of ultimate betrayal, uh, which was, you know, the moment whereby the Muslim Brotherhood also said that it would not give the permission, really, or that basically would not participate in the protests against the military. But actually, the debate and this was Mohammed Mahmoud was in November, November 2011, uh, but and people were calling nine, for nineteenth the, of November. They were calling for there not to be elections yet, and their demand was uh, no, that they they no, did, no, no, they didn't want to have elections was, yet because there hadn't been time. Or uh, no, um, the thing is, nineteenth uh, of November uh, 2011. Muhammad Mahmoud, the first Muhammad Mahmoud, it happened because the families of the martyrs of the revolution and the injured people of the revolution got attacked by the police uh, in the street. Uh, so, and then uh, all the people just went running to the square, to Tahrir Square, to see what is happening and to be in solidarity with the families. And this is this this was the beginning of Muhammad Mahmoud street battles. And then, because the election was very close, like the date the date of the of the election was very close, so we were against the election because we thought this is not democratic culture uh, what is happening is not democracy is not just about voting we had another understanding of democracy we have to build the uh, environment for the democracy so uh, uh, letting the muslim brother using the all this power all this money uh, against, for example, young people with no resource at all is not democracy. We didn't want the people from all the regime to share or to have the right to share in the election because we still didn't build the system of democracy and they still have power and this is not fair and this is not justice. And here came like, because this is why I represented it in ideological way because it, this is the, the, the really the truth that on the ground it was like this. Uh, these people 
did understand democracy in completely different way and they understood that they are in a transitional period uh, where you need to build for democracy first and that we, we are not in rush and that we wanted uh, uh, at the same time that the military uh, uh, give, uh, give up the power, that the military don't rule the country and we ask it for uh, 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 like a civilian elected uh, committee. Basically, as soon as the Muslim Brotherhood got to power, I mean, we do need to get this kind of clear, is that the military or the basically sort of the courts, the judicial courts had disbanded the parliament. So we have a, a Muslim Brotherhood president who comes to, par- or comes to power without a parliament, but also he comes to power under a particular constitutional deadline. Uh, mainly that if he doesn't get the constitution through by a particular deadline, then the military would basically take over and they would, um, you know, rebuild an assembly and they would they would do it. If but also the constitutional assembly that was basically drafting the constitution was about to be disbanded because they were voted on by this disbanded parliament. Now this is all important because it shows that when Morsi got to power, he was very weak. Right. He was a president that didn't have a constitution and didn't have a parliament. So Morsi then, in this sort of paranoia that he almost started to develop, basically started to also label everyone and anyone as a deep state. So he started to also include the revolutionaries that used to be very much against the DN and still are very much against the deep state. He then started to also label them and portray them as being, you know, basically the supporters of the deep state out of this sort of uh, defensive paranoia, one would say. And so you see this, this sort of spiraling out of control. He's trying to grab hold of the um, of the state apparatus also eventually in uh, November uh, 2012 and he issues a presidential declaration by which he basically says that any decision he's made that includes decisions on the constitution etc would not be open for uh, legal challenge and so basically he would immu- he immunized himself against legal challenge from this, then, you see that people started to really rise up uh, massively because even Mubarak didn't do that, right? Even Mubarak kept a veneer of, uh, you can challenge me legally. Now, Morsi basically bypassed that and said, okay, this was his way of gaining control of the state operator. But of course, that really set bad blood like across Egypt. And we see then the presidential clashes occurring, which is basically that in protest to this, people started to camp out at the presidential palace and started to fight each other. Um, And this is where you see the moment of violence turning inwards onto society itself. So civilians started to fight civilians. And we also have to be honest here is that, you know, Morsi might have been elected or whatever people say, albeit the election is very dubious and whatever. He nevertheless never behaved in any kind of democratic way. So even to the presidential uh, palace camp out, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, leadership drove in buses of Brotherhood supporters. They always fueled this kind of polarization. This then basically got to a head in the spring where you see Tamarot campaign uh, occurring. And maybe, Ahmed, you'd like to say a bit more about Tamarat, because I don't want to take over, you know, the whole thing here. Up to yeah, the... but uh, 
actually it's 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 very important uh, vivian what you what you said right now because like for me also the uh, transformation point was this declaration constitutional declaration that morsi uh, issued um and here the things became very dramatic and the tamarud was just uh, at the beginning it was a real move coming from among uh, uh, the people from the from the young people of the revolution uh, but then the the um uh, how special agency the intelligent agency in egypt took over the movement and um, like we had a lot of uh, uh, argue and debate before 13th of june with the, with the people who were calling to to the streets that okay how can you prevent the military uh, from taking over uh, uh, the movement that was the main question and the main problem we had and at this moment they hoped or the people who joined tamarud and supported tamarud they were very hopefully thinking that uh, the people will not leave the square until they uh, get rid of both the uh, muslim brothers and the military which was not practical at all actually because the movement began to be supported by the old regime supporters mubarak uh, supporter the deep state uh, supporters all this uh, thing together so even the police uh, uh, officers were protesting beside the people which was really a very serial and a crazy scene uh, uh, which made me for example really crying i felt that was kind of um i didn't believe what is happening uh, and i was sure i was sure that all this is organized by, by the military and uh, the helicopters were <laughs> flying above the square it's a very sad uh, scene very sad moment uh, for the egyptian for egypt because it began an a completely new era that was the the moment where the anti-revolution camp uh, uh, got the power and began his dirty war uh, on all the Egyptian people, not just Muslim brothers, on all the Egyptian people, on the people who dared to dream to uh, uh, get their country back in their hands. So still now, we are living this dirty war exactly the strategies that has been used in latin america he is using them uh, uh, like copy paste um, the force enforced disappearance is uh, uh, a very strategic systematic mean they use me myself if anyone get arrested he is uh, enforceably disappeared uh, until uh, until get, there's any exceptions there but this is the rule, which was also the rule before during Mubarak. But as I said, we was we was not calling it in this way. We was not using the international expression. And uh, and also torturing and uh, extrajudicial killing. That's all means they are using in their dirty war. And of course, the prison in the center of the oppressive machine of the state, and. Uh, the, this might be the reason even why the struggle uh, become in this way. Also, the present is the center of our struggle uh, right now.
we are in this uh, era of reaction, re reactions to be reactions all the time. You are not active anymore because the revolution uh, is already defeated. Uh, but the struggle is still continue because the, because there are uh, a lot of political prisoners uh, in there. And this is what the regime, for example, don't realize that doesn't realize that if he just released these people, he uh, uh, will uh, get rid of most of the opposition and most of the uh, stimulus of for the people to keep struggling. So because now they have no other choice, this is the only way they can keep going. They, they friends, their uh, comrades, their beloved, their family. They can't stop struggling, but and this also I think because that the 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 regime in Egypt um, doesn't understand this. He think that there are group of people who created the revolution, and if he get rid of them, then there is no revolution. But he he doesn't understand that the revolution came from the people, the average people on the street. They are the revolution. And so he kept this uh, uh, number of political prisoners just as a sign of victory. And uh, I'm sure that the Egyptian regime till now didn't overcome the uh, moment of the revolution as also the revolutionary do. They also didn't overcome the moment of the revolution yet. And, uh, and it's very funny that both ways also still being prisoners of this moment and deal with uh, uh, our political era and space in Egypt with the same principles and perspective, uh, which is not true because we are in a completely different era. The revolution is already defeated. There is no argue about this. And we have to come over in January uh, 2011 to begin to build something new to try to find another speech, uh, maybe, may, that like the, the Egyptian people get listened to us and may we get the attention. And we will never get the attention now by telling them about the revolution that they are still living in its consequences. After Tamarod um, happened and then we have the, the big demonstrations, you know, on the 30th of June, as soon as this happened, what he did is that he built a facade of like a government of a variety of different people of different paths of life. So um, basically building a facade of diversity and inclusiveness. And this is how he portrayed himself to the world. Then without informing even this government, let alone the Egyptian people as such, but without informing them, so going behind their backs, um, apart from, of course, his, his trusted security um, services, he then goes out and kills basically more than a thousand people at Rabah, right? And Rabah was the sit-in of the Muslim Brotherhood supporters, uh, just for those who, who are not so familiar. And basically, one morning, all the security forces and police uh, surrounded the camps and fired indiscriminately, basically having a massacre uh, on the place. <clears throat> now, in all this... What happened is that the liberal and the socialist Democrats um, and the sort of the center, shall we say, of the political uh, scene, they basically left out of protest, either immediately as in Al-Baradai or uh, Zeba, then basically later and, and others. 
out of protest of what was happening. But in doing so out of protest, there basically was no... Sisi could portray himself as being the only option for the Egyptian people. You know, and not only was he the, the hero that basically got rid of the brotherhood, but he was now also the only possible political option left for the Egyptians. So in this sense, you also I think it's important to, that we understand that, that basically Sisi literally rose like Phoenix from the ashes of Rabbah. I mean, he rose from death. And that is what his regime is based on. It's based on the logic of death. Because in order for him to keep his interests, like his political and economic interests, which is basically, you know, politically, he's been closing in his circles around him. Economically, he's been tying, you know, all the economic ties towards his own regime. Um, You see that basically he's completely sort of hell-bent on destruction of Egyptians as such, that the the principle of death is, you see this everywhere in the sense of the way people die uh, through extrajudicial killings when, you know, massive uh, death sentence become too, regarded as too complex, although they've been sped up, etc., um, when you know prison people are just ended up uh, end up in prison for any kind of spurious charges or mass trials sometimes you know up to hundreds of people who are sentenced at the same time um, and many of them are left to basically die in prison out of negligence uh, lack of medical care lack of food lack of anything I really think we have to understand that f- for CC's regime. It is based on the principle of death and destruction right from the beginning. And that is actually what he's still including to this day, unfortunately. You're listening to Hope Dies Last. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please hop on over to patreon.com slash Ryan Harvey Music. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Ryan Harvey Music. You can sign up to make a monthly donation to help support the show. Thanks for listening, y'all, and enjoy the rest of the episode. Vivian, you, one of the things that you've been researching and writing about is kind of how the CC regime erased the revolution as a, an emotional experience, I suppose. I mean, when you talk to a lot of people that were there in the streets in 2011 in Egypt or, or throughout the region, and one of the main things you hear about besides just the anger and, and just this breaking point was that this grave silence had been broken, right? Like, not a silence, not in terms of you could just yell in the streets now, which was also true, but but a silence of the mind, right? Like, people allowed themselves to to dream again, right? And allowed themselves to feel a sense of possibility. And I think that's something that's universally been felt, really, since the Tunisian and Egyptian revolutions throughout the world. I think people have gotten the vibe you know from the streets that's like well what if we uh what if we just did this what if we started believing that this was possible um and and what you have been looking at is is not just how the regime has tried to consolidate power politically and economically but also how they've tried to literally undo put put the genie back in the bottle maybe you could talk about what what you've seen in your conversations and and obviously said you can you can chime in as one who's experienced this firsthand i mean i would say that really in this sense also the the importance of the 25th of january revolution is that people on the square start to relate to each other as 
equal equals in literally this fight against uh, against the regime, but also really equals in with each other in a revolutionary public sphere. And in doing so, they were basically it was they were fully able to at that point, despite the violence, etc., from the regime. Because I mean, let's just not forget, it was massively violent from the beginning. They were able to basically establish a sense of you know humanity. Um, and this is also what we what we often see and, and hear uh, by those who, who were present and what we you know hear from friends and others. And it's precisely this humanity. When we talk about humanity, it's a sense of being able to manifest yourself in the world. It's being able to shape your life and the lives of those around you in basically relation with others around you. Now, it's precisely this that offers the, the moment of possibility, that moment offers the moment of dreaming of a different future, that offers a moment of fighting also for a different future. And it's this that the basically that all the successive um, Egyptian um, post-revolutionary regimes, so SCAF, the Supreme Council of Armed Forces in the beginning, but then also Morsi, and then now basically Sisi as the sort of, you know, the cherry on the counter-revolutionary cake, that's what they've tried to break from the beginning. It's that what they've done is through the exertion of extreme violence um, and the profound, relentless confrontation with death from the beginning, again, with Scaff and then through Morsi um, and then Sisi as being the ultimate uh, master of death. You see that what happens in the confrontation with death is that it shifts you existentially. It really means that your life world, your the way you used to make sense of the world, falls apart. And for some, this could have been in you know a moment of a confrontation with death, but for others, it was the the accumulation of the confrontation with death. But it wasn't just death that they that they employed to have this existential shift by which you wouldn't see any possibility anymore. It was also through the uh, what I call basically sort of the instrumental claiming uh, and instrumental colonization of the public sphere. So they they really took hold of the public sphere saying, you have no voice. You cannot manifest yourself in this world. You cannot manifest yourself in the Egyptian public sphere. You are excluded. You are silenced. And then what they did is that they started to uh, really, and this is also what we see happening in Tomarot, really feed the polarization by which even the injuries that you've then endured, even the deaths that you've seen, don't only seem pointless because there's a lack of positive results, there's a lack of movement towards revolutionary freedom, but people actually believe that you are the bad one, that you are the reason why Egypt's going down the drain, that you are the reason why it's going worse. So we see a lot of victim blaming at the same time going on. And it's this lack of recognition and also of the injuries that people have suffered, that then is compiled um, and just makes it worse and worse and worse, which means that in the end, people just become completely demoralized, but worse than that, actually just completely existentially destroyed. People I've spoken to, basically, it's like the, what the revolution, or the, sorry, the counter-revolution tried to do is not only take away the object of the revolution as such, not just take away the public sphere as such, but they take away the very capacity to even think of a possibility uh, of a public sphere. And this is also why actually Sisi is so relentless in his crackdown on the Egyptian 
revolution. This is why he's not letting go, because he, he wants to keep crushing this very potential uh, of dreaming. I think that Sisi is trying to prevent the possibility of a different, of a, a new revolution or of a new uh, uprising. And this is the message of what, which Sisi is giving all the time uh, to the public. He is saying what happened in uh, uh, 2011 will never gonna happen again. And he said that many times very clearly and actually Every year, he say the same thing. So this is his job. Sisi is still building his new military state, and he is still facing the nightmare of uprising, and he is sure he is not stable enough. He is not stable yet. So he is so violent. In Rabah, for example, a regime the, the, the regime didn't uh, need uh, at all to use all this amount of violence they there was no necessity necessity for this but he chose to act this way to send a very clear message to all the political players in the egyptian political scene it was a very clear message to everyone that is our like our that we have no limit in using violence we can kill thousands Egyptian in hours and nothing happened. So this was the, a, a very clear political message, which is terrorism. It's typically a state terrorism. And it's typically what Sisi is doing right now, what I, I described before as the dirty war. It's just uh, a state terrorism. And maybe also as a one who lived the experience, I, I have realized by the prison uh, experience, one of the things that I have uh, uh, learned, that the real battle is about dehumanizing us. This is their tool of revenge and their tool to prevent any hope of revolution, any hope of development, any hope of progression. Uh, uh, so they dehumanizing us all the time. The prison is... A, a tool to dehumanize us. And this is what they are doing all the time, by all means, by torture, by enforcing disappearance, by even calling us terrorists, calling atheists terrorists, calling atheists uh, uh, extremists. So this all nonsense is just a way of dehumanization. And the, um, our battle is to try to survive this, to see it. So. Uh, I have been asked to write a, 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 a message to the political prisoners in Egypt, and I found no uh, uh, thing uh, better than this to say. Just don't let them dehumanize you, because otherwise you are to, you are not defeated if they if you if you prevented them from dehumanizing you. And actually, we we sometimes also. Uh, do the same, but from an, from another perspective, like creating icons from uh, ourselves, from our revolutionaries, is also dehumanizing them in uh, the other extreme end. It's also preventing them uh, of feeling human, weak, uh, have the right to to be desperate, 
have the right to cry, have the right to show that you are defeated, uh, have the right to uh, to be human, just to be human, not a hero, not a, an, an icon. This is also one of the dehumanizing uh, things uh, and processes that we are living in. And maybe maybe Vivian would talk m- much more better th- uh, than me uh, on this. I mean, from the also from the psychological point of view, and because I think we we had discussion a lot about this thing with trauma and with trauma, and she had an amazing uh, work uh, like discussing this. I think also with this, it's really you raise a really really important point, and that is that sense to be human and how difficult that also is under these circumstances. Um, first, I want to say actually something about what you said about, you know, this sort of dehumanization through heroism. I've seen that also in many of the interviews that I've done, including some that had iconic status. And actually what you see with them is that there's this confusion, right? On the one hand, I've been severely injured up to the point that I'm permanently disabled. And at the same time, I have an all-empowering sort of power of I'm a hero. And so whatever I do, people will applaud me and people love me regardless of how how I am. Um, And then you find that often there's this combination of not being able to deal with this um, psychologically. And what we then see is that actually often the people who suffer most are their loved ones, are their uh, children, are their families, others that they can then take it out. And so the frustration, because it cannot be directed directly at the culprit, namely the counter-revolutionary regime that does this violence to you, becomes diverted onto the weaker others and becomes diverted in this cycle of revenge and polarization because what we have is also a buildup of frustration of seeing people die around you um you know tens of people die around you in one evening um that you see physically with brains being shut and blown out uh, you know body parts going all over the place and yet, you know, there's nothing changes, nothing is being done, people are not being held accountable. So it's also this aggression uh, that is actually a vented anger out of impotence, feeling completely helpless against this regime um, that just does all this violence to you. And yet, you know, you fight back, you fight heroically back and you have to keep up the status of a hero whilst at the same time you're crumbling inside. So you find that then that, that aggression and that frustration is channeled elsewhere. Um, And this is when violence also turns inwards on society. And that's what also helps the counter-revolutionary regime of, in this case, al-Sisi. Because the one thing he wants most is for this violence to be re-channeled towards, you know, family, loved ones, and also the particularly those that you wouldn't agree with politically, etc., etc. So it's a really tricky thing because being human and this this psychology of allowing to be human would require at least I would say two things and that is a a share at least on a social form a shared recognition of the injuries that have been suffered um, and the injustices that have been inflicted and that secondly in relation to that that there is a shared sort of um, holding space that you can be validated again as a human being 
so that you know you're validated with all your weaknesses but the problem is that this becomes sort of a chicken and egg story as in like how do you actually bring this about particularly when all the regime does is crush people you know again and again and again and again sometimes as young as three and four years old um and it's very difficult to find your way out of this. Another hallmark of the current regime in Egypt is the political prisoners. Amnesty International has estimated, I think, 41,000 political prisoners right now in Egypt. Said you were one of them only a few years ago. And I mean, this is, it's a shocking statistic to look at. And there's so few names that I even know of as somebody who really tries to follow this. And I remember back in 2012, a, a friend of mine uh, in Egypt were, were trying to put together a list of political prisoners, and it was just, it was just an endless, endless list. Um, maybe you could talk about what the situation looks like and what are these people charged with? Who, who are they? It's a, it's a very hard topic, and let's begin even with the numbers. Uh, because you mentioned that Amnesty uh, estimated the number as 41,000 political prisoners, but actually... The number of the people who have been arrested from 2013 till 2019, 131,000. So it's a huge number. And this number is uh, documented uh, by the names of the political prisoners, by the, by the cases, by where they are right now, where they're spending sentence. So this is a, a, a very well documented information I'm responsible for. It's the number is much more huge than this number, uh, and I think this estimation was in 2015. So uh, as you, as you said, that's um, the prison is full of prisoners. This is the the tool that uh, the threatening card that Sisi is uh, pointing out all the time to the Egyptian people, and as Vivian also mentioned, that the death is in the center of this dictatorship. Even the death of the Egyptian soldiers is something to be celebrated, is not something bad. So, and killing the terrorists is something to be celebrated also as well. Uh, you didn't, you don't need to prove that these people terrorists or not. You just kill people and then uh, uh, bring up a story about killing some terrorists. And I have witnessed a lot of stories like this. Uh, of people who uh, I document, for example, documented, for example, that they are forcibly disappeared, and then they uh, reappear after two, three months, uh, accused of being terrorists, like the extrajudicial killing, uh, which also Vivian talked about before. So I, I don't re really know uh, how to talk about the, the, the situation in, in in the prison in the Egyptian prison because it's really unimaginable. Like uh, whatever I. Uh, explained, but it's just enough to say that every right, every right, the Egyptian, the, the political prisoner or the prisoner in, in general, also the socio-economical prisoners. So every right the prisoner have on paper in law is being used as a tool for punishment of the uh, political uh, prisoners or of the prisoners. So there is no right at all. They can do whatever they want. They can prevent you even from like as Vivian again mentioned, people are dying. I have, I'm a doctor. So when we, there were some emergent cases, medical emergencies in the prison, they were taking me out of my uh, cell uh, anytime, bringing me to the uh, other uh, uh, 
prisoner and just hey try to find out what he has and you find out really people need to be transferred to hospital but they just ignore and leave them there for hours i have seen some one of these people dying uh, and i have tried to uh, resuscitate him i have tried to do the reanimation but there was no tools at all i was screaming of uh, asking them to call the the, the ambulance but nothing happened and at the end they just fabricate a report and they said that he already received the medical care for one week which was a big lie the guy was trying to go to the clinic for one week complaining of chest pain uh, has the typical symptoms and signs of a myocardial infarction and they didn't let him go to go to the clinic till he died in his cell and if you if we begin with 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 the, with, the, with examples really we will not end there are a lot of examples one of them is muhammad mursi the ex elected president he is one of them one of the people who have been died because of medical negligence and it is not medical negligence it is killing by uh, 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 preventing the medical care the uh, emergent and the urgent and the necessary medical care me myself i was prevented from taking my uh, from my, taking my medication my prescribed medication they uh, when i was in hunger strike for 18 days during the first uh, in first disappearance period they uh, have tried to convince me by all means to eat and to break my hunger strike they refused even to comment that i'm in hunger strike they refused to transfer me to the hospital and they were just watching me there dying so they are killing people by all means as a they dehumanize people and even if the people go out of the prison then they mostly really destroyed really destroyed in a society that will not understand something like this and to a society that will re-banish them again for being a victim of such a thing and the whole discourse the whole political discourse right now as i mentioned i don't know if I mentioned this or not, but it is stamped by the human rights discourse, which there are many reasons, many rational reasons why it is like this. But I don't think I will go into details. I would just try to say that we will never be able to uh, make all political prisoners in Egypt get benefit from what all we do, because it's still at the end our way or our key is to have uh, an European government that would uh, be convinced to support this case and this person so they will get him out at the end. This is the most victorious th thing we can achieve. But through this discourse, you can help only the people who have uh, context with or connection to the Western uh, context and the Western uh, uh, world. Uh, otherwise, these countries, this government will not buy your case, will not support your case. They need also something they can use. At the same time, while these Western governments are part, are very active and important and basic part of the counter-revolution mm -hmm. or of, of the anti-revolution camp, as I call it. 
they are a very active and basic players. Without them, there was no, uh, we would not have Assisi there. Assisi, uh, uh, in his uh, counter-revolution, got uh, uh, supported by the reactionary governments or uh, uh, regimes in, in, in the Gulf areas. And then with Europe, Germany, France, Italy, and from USA and even from Russia. So he had support from all these people. And he actually was very clever in dealing with them. And I you always say that Assisi ha always have the upper hand in any negotiation with any Western country because he knows what he can use. Like right. in Europe, the core of the politics, politic, political scene right now is immigration is the uh, unorganized immigration so he used this as a card dealing with europe uh, and he know that army deals money is the thing that europe needs mm. he knows that europe uh, like to hear that he is fighting terrorism he knows that having good relation and the strategic relation to israel is something wanted and uh, celebrated by western government so he is working in four uh, uh, topics uh, very important to the uh, Western uh, uh, politics, and he can get the legitimization he uh, wanted. Like the first country to receive a CC as a president was Germany, just three months after the, uh, si the, the, the after signing the Simmons deal, which is the hugest deal in Simmons history. So the uh, uh, the policy of germany toward assisi changed in 3 months from this is a coup this is a dictatorship to this is our partner and also he used the the army deal with france he used the army deal with uh, with russia with uh, it with italy so when he needs any legitimization he just make a, a, an army deal and everything is set up we saw that recently as well in like a very clear way when, you know, after basically several EU uh, diplomats and ambassadors had visited local human rights organization, the EAPR, its staff were basically uh, rounded up and put in prison on the, on the terrible conditions as anyone else in, uh, in Egypt is. And by the way, on this point also, I very much agree with what Ahmed just said that Really, it's only those with Western connections or with international connections that those are the stories we hear about, whereas actually the poor and those without connections often are treated the worst and have the worst kind of cases, etc. But what I wanted to get to here was that also with this, you actually see that CC uses imprisonment also as an international tool, I would almost say. So basically, these diplomats visited this human rights organization, then its senior staff imprisoned and maltreated. There's an international outcry of basically a variety of different activists. It gets kind of quite high up. Um, but then what CC does is that the Friday before, uh, or several days basically before he goes to meet France, is that suddenly he releases them. And he doesn't release them in the normal way. No, he releases them directly from Torah prison. And what we see then, all of the outcry goes. Everyone's so happy they are, they've been released, which I mean, you know, of course, for anyone, I mean, you want any, you want your worst enemy out of out of Torah prison. So I mean, this is not to to you know, uh, 
um, diminish that celebration. But the problem is that within that celebration, the critique then also stifles. And so Sisi um, is also able to meet, in that case, Macron and say, look, you know, I've done this. And basically Macron then signs, signs a weapon deal. So we also, I think, we shouldn't underestimate Sisi as a strategic player um, in using this. And uh, this is also very, very uh, important, uh, Vivian, to, to, to mention uh, it's something like I, I I don't know if uh, uh, Ryan would agree with me. Something like having Trump to be happy uh, with Biden. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, know, <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> now we are all happy. We are all happy that yeah. that that Trump just went away, and Biden is there. So we are we we would not be happy uh, with Biden coming if Trump right. was not. Before him, right, and I, I would also here ask Ryan about about his uh, expectation about if this would be a, an efficient change in the American policy uh, toward Egypt uh, in the human rights file, for example. You know, I don't know. I think that you know any anything I say regarding the Biden administration, I'm sure, will be controversial because. It, who knows you know there's so much rhetoric that's that's used during an election and often that changes when the election is over in biden's case you know it seems like he has some sincerity around some of the promises he made during the campaign they seem to be more domestic you know i think he understands that he really you know shifted his campaign on a on a progressive mandate domestically partly because he knew he had to satisfy enough of the of the bernie crowd and also enough of the sort of the disaffected trump supporters to uh to win the election and you know like trump he understands that you have to at least follow through on some of that you have to give people something um you know on his international team it doesn't look super promising and progressive but it also could be far worse you know i i think that one you know good thing i think it was trump's was it Trump's first international trip as president where he went and, you know, touched that orb with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and with Sisi? Uh, you know, that was very foretelling of what was to come. I think that there is a strong leftist and progressive movement right now in the U.S., stronger than than I've ever seen. And it has an international um, uh, awareness. I wouldn't say it has an international agenda necessarily, but I think it will. Um, and I think a big part of, even for liberals, you know, for the kind of mainstream liberals here, there's a, there's a strong desire to, to undo the damage that Trump did in the world to the U.S.'s image and reputation and also to their power. Obviously the left isn't interested in maintaining American power, but if maintaining an, the America's quote, good reputation in the world, uh, means, you know, breaking relationships with dictators like General Sisi, then yeah, that's good. We should use it. Um, so I, I do think that, you know, and for those listening, like it, it from what you've heard today from these interviews and, and just understanding the the depth of just the pain and the and the the sort of frozen state of being that has been brought about by this regime our actions in, in especially in the United States matter so much in regards to to the situation for people in Egypt dealing with this regime like 
our money is flowing into that country to its military you know that is that's our second that's the second largest recipient of us military aid after israel is egypt there's a reason for that and it's not an easy task to undo it but that is a massive massive part of the equation another revolution you know you could have five revolutions in a row if the us is still pumping money into the country's military you know good luck good luck beating that it's not an easy one the most important lesson i think the egyptian revolutionaries have learned in 2011 that there's nothing called local revolution and that the revolution everywhere the struggle everywhere in the world are linked to our struggle it's a part of our struggle and we have to act this way act with a conscious of this uh, uh, fact to be able to have a really change uh, in Egypt. Hope Dies Last is recorded by me. Special thanks to our guest today, Said and Vivian. If you haven't heard the previous episode where I spoke with the Egyptian artist Ganzir, you should go back and check that out. That's part one of this two-part series on the Egyptian revolution. If you enjoyed the episode, please sign up to make a monthly donation to help support the show at patreon.com slash ryanharveymusic. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash ryanharveymusic. Stay tuned, y'all. Peace. <laughs>